Liberty Dies with thunderous applause. I'm your host Scott with Uncle Ian and today we are talking about Ivan the Terrible and Vladimir Lenin. Liberty Dies with thunderous applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We have created a knockout competition to determine the single most significant dictator of all time. Each episode features a matchup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of each battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be named history's biggest, scariest, most significant, boldest, worst, maddest, and greatest dictator. Uncle Ian, please tell us about Ivan the Terrible. Thank you, Scott. Ivan the Terrible is probably one of the best known of Russia's rulers. Part of that's because of his nickname, but part of that was because of the period in which he ruled and the effect that he had on Russia. He uh, was born in 1530. His father, Vasily III, wasn't an emperor. He was a grand prince because at that stage, Moscow was a grand duchy. And Vasily III had been a grand prince since his own father, Ivan III, had uh, preceded him. Just an introduction on calendars and dates. In the 16th century, Russia was still using the Julian calendar which was an orthodox calendar. It was the calendar that Julius Caesar had introduced. It made certain allowances for leap years and leap days, but was slightly out of sync with the calendar that we use now today, which is called the Gregorian calendar after Pope Gregory. So if you're ever doing any reading on Russia in the 16th century, you'll often see the term NS or OS. NS is new style dates, which is the Gregorian calendar. OS is old style dates, which is the Russian or Orthodox calendar. Various countries adopted the Gregorian calendar over time, but Russia didn't do so until well into the 20th century. So that can actually explain why something in Russian terms happened in one month, but as far as the Western or Gregorian calendar is concerned, it was seen to have happened in a different month. Anyway, back to Ivan. Vasily III died when Ivan was only three years old. So Ivan then became Grand Prince, and shortly after that, only um, when Ivan was eight, um, his mother, Elena, died. So by 1538, Ivan was an orphan. The nobles in the uh, in the Russian court, or the Moscow court as it then was, it was still only uh, really the Grand Duchy, were then in charge of Ivan and his his rule, took a, his rule in the form of a regency while Ivan was still in his teens. By 1547, they had decided that they wanted to make Moscow appear bigger on the world stage. At the age of 16, Ivan was crowned as Tsar of all the Russias. That was a new title. The Grand Duchy of Moscow had imperial ambitions, and this word Tsar hadn't previously been used. They quite deliberately based that word on the name Caesar. Ivan wanted to build what he called a third Rome, the first Correct. Rome being Rome, the second being Istanbul or Constantinople, and then they wanted to continue that legacy with building a third Rome in Moscow, and he would be the Tsar or Caesar, meaning emperor. Very much so, and in fact there was a strong family connection 
with the Byzantine Empire because Ivan's great-grandfather was the brother of the last Byzantine Emperor. That always reinforced Ivan's commitment to his, to his Orthodox Christianity. He very much saw that he had a divine right to rule. And to be fair, so did most of the monarchs in Europe at that time. So he wasn't, he wasn't alone in that regard. That was reinforced by the various coincidences with his praying. So he would pray for the man that was looking after him while he was a prince because he was poorly looked after. He was not fed and he would be forced to wear rags. They used the fact that he was a child prince to rule Moscovy. And Ivan hated these boys, so he would pray for them to die. There are occasions where they did drop dead. And so that reinforced his um, belief in his divine right. Yes, it certainly underlined his, his commitment to his own sense of purpose and, and being entitled to be on the throne. Um, in appearance, as an adult, um, Ivan was uh, was tall for his time, 1.78 metres. Um, was described as having a uh, reddish beard, but being quite imposing in appearance. Personality-wise, he... Uh, left poems and musical compositions, most of them based on Orthodox religion. He wrote a number of hymns as well. He is recorded to have had seven wives. A number of those wives uh, met untimely ends, possibly at the hands of the nobility, each of the nobility being keen to put forward their own relatives as a future wife of the Tsar. We should also mention his name because that's probably how he's best known to history. The record that he left as a ruler um, certainly entitles him to be called terrible, but perhaps no more so than his predecessors. The translation of terrible, probably it's more close to talk about him being formidable or fearsome. And so, some of that may have derived from his height and appearance, as well as from his nature of ruling. From a perspective of what happened during Ivan's rule, Russia slowly started opening up to the rest of the world. It had been very isolated, um, not just geographically, but in terms of elements like trade and diplomacy. Ivan had correspondence with Elizabeth I of England. He welcomed English trade delegations to come to Moscow, and that actually led to the setting up of the Muscovy Company, which was a very um, big trading organisation in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Some of the other elements of his reign. In 1553, he supported Russia getting the printing press for the first time. He also authorised a revision of the legal code, bringing it up to date. The very first National Assembly, it was only an advisory body, um, but that meant in 1549 under Ivan's sponsorship. He is also remembered as having enacted laws that restricted the mobility of peasants and that set the standard or set the scene for uh, Russian serfdom. Now, serfdom wasn't slavery, but it almost was. How is it different to slavery? Slavery is where you're owned by a person, whereas serfdom was very much being tied to a plot of land and you were responsible for the upkeep of that land, responsible to a noble for the upkeep of that land, but you were allowed a small portion of, your, portion of it yourself. If the land got sold, the serfs stayed with the land. Whereas with slavery, the most common definition of slavery is that you're owned by an individual and if that individual moves, then you move with that individual rather than with the land. And serfdom was almost a defining characteristic of Russia right through to the mid-19th century. It started with these laws restricting the mobility of peasants. 
that were introduced during Ivan's time. In 1570, Ivan organised for the sacking of the city of Novgorod. Novgorod had a very uh, big contingent of uh, nobles and he was worried that at that stage the city of Novgorod was going to defect to one of his foreign opponents. So the sacking of Novgorod was quite brutal. There were a number of massacres that went on for um, a number of weeks, possibly as many as 60,000 victims of the sack of Novgorod. The manner in which he killed people was very brutal as well, and he seemed to really enjoy it. He would throw bridges into the freezing waters. One victim had boiling water poured on him, and then freezing water, and then boiling water, and then freezing water, until his skin fell off. There were a number of horrific deaths. There was certainly a lot of torture, and a lot of that is, is well documented by the, uh, the religious leaders of Novgorod who survived. And, and an um, archbishop was brought out of the church and, and stripped. Ivan wanted to rob the bishop of his celibacy, make him break the vow of celibacy. So he said he was going to find him a wife, and then brought out a horse, married the bishop, to a horse and then tied him naked to the horse and the horse rode off. Yes, some very brutal punishments there. And the city itself took a long time to um, recover. Well, he um, killed a third of the population. The... Yes. Yeah, it was... And he wanted to send a message to other cities as well that with his foreign policy, which we'll, which we'll have a look at shortly, that he wanted to make sure that all the inhabitants were aware that uh, there'd be consequences if any of, them, any of them threatened to defect to his opponents. From... The foreign policy perspective, Ivan very actively pursued wars against a number of his neighbours. Russia was very keen to have a port on the Baltic Sea. It was blocked by the combined forces of Poland and Lithuania. And the Livonian Wars went on for well over 20 years um, and almost bankrupted Russia. Ivan had inherited a country in debt and the increased taxes to pay for the war only made it worse and ultimately unsuccessful. He also had wars to the south, including against the Ottomans, as part of ensuring that uh, Russia had access to the Caspian Sea. And during his reign, Russia was able to take control of the entire length of the Volga River to ensure that they still could have a Caspian Sea port. The other element of Ivan's reign was an expansion eastward. And so Russia started to colonise what we now call Siberia. And he wanted to do that for a couple of reasons, not just from a prestige point of view, um, but also he wanted to make sure that his country had a buffer against the Mongols to make sure that the Mongols would have a harder job invading if they, uh, if they, had, plans, if they had plans to do so. Uh, Religious-wise, um, he was reported as being very tolerant of Islam and because he had a number of Islamic states to the south, including the Ottomans and also the Tatars, he didn't want to be seen to offend any of the sultans of those areas. But he is, he is recorded as being very anti-Semitic and uh, the punishments that he put on people of Jewish population in the cities that he overran um, were also quite, uh, also quite brutal. He had seven wives. He didn't have a very happy home life. And in fact, one of the most well-known incidents is the report that he killed his pregnant daughter-in-law and his son. Now, whether that was deliberate is, is debated by history, but that did have some very far-fetching consequences because after he killed his eldest son, it meant that his middle son, Feodor, became his successor in 1584. Every source I've read calls Feodor weak-minded. Um, he wasn't 
he wasn't raised to be an emperor and he was very much the capture in the capture of the nobles he ruled till 1598 after that there was a, a lot of instability and in fact the uh, dynasty of which Ivan was part, which was the Rurik dynasty, didn't survive Feodor. There were a number of military leaders who took over as Tsar after 1598 up until 1613 when Michael was the first ruler of the Romanov dynasty. Uh, and the, the Romanov dynasty then commenced its 300 years on the Russian throne. What else do we remember Ivan for? There were a couple of occasions when he said to his council of nobles, if you don't give me what I want, then I'm going to abdicate. And that happened in 1564. It happened again in the mid-1570s. And on each occasion, the nobles said, no, we want you to stay in power. And Ivan said, well, I'm happy to do so, but you need to give me absolute power. So some of this may have been bluffing. Some of this may have been the nobles being nervous about opposing him. Um, but he regularly stressed that because of his inheritance and because of his divine right to rule that he was entitled to absolute power because he wanted to make sure that his own position was secure and that he could then continue to continue to carry on the wars that, that he wanted seems to. to be a very clever tactic because he would start a war with Livonia or Lithuania and then say I'm abdicating and then because the country's at war and they need a leader they don't want the chaos of a power vacuum. So then the nobles say, okay, please come back and we'll give you everything you want. So it's very clever how he pulls that off. Yeah, I was struck by the fact that it did happen on more than one occasion um, as part of him trying to reinforce, or uh, I think now we'd call that doubling down to reinforce his position of authority. There's some interesting parallels with the, the Council of Nobles realising that they did need a, a supreme leader. Some interesting parallels with how that, that dictatorship term originated in Roman times in the first place. So we remember Ivan not just by his nickname, we remember him by the short-term instability that followed him, but he was primarily responsible for Russia's commencement of expansion, both in the eastward direction towards Siberia and in the southward direction towards the Caspian and the Caucasus and, and eventually to the Central Asian republics. Never did quite succeed in getting a, a port on the Baltic Sea. However, the size of Russia now is something that we can directly trace back to Ivan's rule in the second half of the 16th century. What stands out for me is that third row concept that we mentioned earlier. He very much saw that he was the inheritor of the, the grandeur of the Roman Empire um, and that term that had been derived from the word Caesar only reinforced that and that's how he always how he always saw himself and how he would have wanted history to see him. I like the significance, particularly with the size of Russia. and that, That's a big deal that he's the reason that Russia looks the way it does. I like that. Well, yeah, I mean, his father had been Grand Prince of Moscow. So the fact that that was then turned into the, the empire of Russia, which continued to expand to the Pacific and almost almost to the Indian Ocean. Yeah, that, that's all on Ivan's watch. One of the things we wanted to discuss was signs of dictatorship as a child, and Ivan fits that bill. Kings and emperors very much drew on what they called the divine right of kings, um, and, and Ivan saw himself as no exception to that. There's a great legend that surrounds Ivan in his birth because his father couldn't conceive a child with his wife and divorced his wife. And, and found a new wife. And that, in 
Orthodox Christian Russia was absolutely forbidden. And so there mm. was a legend that said that the son of this sin will be a devil, which Ivan then turned out to be. To fulfill that prophecy. Yes. And we see the early signs of his demonic behavior in that as a teenager, he tortured animals. He threw cats and dogs off the roof of the castle. Certainly his his nickname, while open to interpretation, um, yeah, you can certainly see how how that has stuck with him over the years. We spoke before we started recording about Game of Thrones. One interesting thing about Ivan is that he used dogs to rip apart his victim. He often would um, use his... The Opraneki was his own personal army. They used to roll around in uh, all black, riding black horses with a decapitated dog's head stuck to the side of the horse. And he used these people. He rounded up uh, men to be killed and women to be taken and used for torture. So he would set the women off into the woods and then with a band of men go hunting with dogs to try to hunt them down. And I mentioned Game of Thrones because I believe that's the inspiration for the infamous Game of Thrones character, Ramsay Bolton, who does very similar things. Ah, okay. Did you want to talk about his first wife? I think she's the main reason why he does anything decent. His first wife, Anastasia Romanov, Mm. who has a good calming influence on Ivan, and she convinces him to use very wise men as counsel, and basically any achievements he gets in that period is is due to that influence and then when she dies and then their son dies the son died in a very tragic manner he was a baby and he was being carried by one of the maids the maid trips and then the baby falls in the river and and drowns the death of the son and the death of anastasia really drove him mad and led to some of the atrocities that you mentioned earlier and there's a component of that as well that not only was she an influence for for good on him but then when she when she died uh, in 1560, Ivan not only was extremely upset, but in fact suspected that his wife had been murdered. So he took a look, he took revenge on the the boyars, the, the the nobles, and after that, you're right, that led to the decision that he needed not only a strike force but also a group that could serve as a bodyguard. In the late 20th century, archaeologists actually re-examined. Anastasia's body and did find high levels of mercury in her hair could have been that that was as a result of her being poisoned um, which then set Ivan on a on a demonic path okay so now it's time to look at our second contender in our knockout competition up against Ivan the Terrible is the communist dictator Vladimir Lenin also from Russia Now, Lenin was born as Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. He later changed his name to Lenin, but for the purpose of this podcast, I'll just continue to call him Lenin. Vladimir Lenin was born into a wealthy, middle-class Russian family. His mother was partly Jewish, and his father was partly Central Asian, which gave Lenin what was described as his Mongolian features. As a young child, Lenin would bang his head against the floor, and his mother was worried that he would grow up to be mentally retarded. But Lenin grew up to be an intelligent, opinionated, and self-centered child. The Russia he was born into was Tsarist Russia. It was an authoritarian regime. Russia was an absolute monarchy established by Ivan the Terrible. It was a police state. Censors would ban any material, any, any books, that were critical of the Tsar or critical of Russian life in general, and all political parties were banned. The Tsars were actually so harsh 
on the middle class liberals. It actually pushed any opposition to the extremes of politics. When Lenin was 17, his brother Sasha was arrested for attempting to assassinate the Tsar. Lenin's brother Sasha actually built the three bombs that were going to be used in the assassination attempt. And while under arrest, Sasha was actually banned from receiving visitors. Lenin's mother wrote a letter to the Tsar to ask permission to see Sasha. And the Tsar actually agreed, saying that his mother should see the man for what he really is. Sasha was hanged to death on the 8th of May, and this had a profound effect on Lenin. He was effectively radicalized overnight. And this was while Lenin was still trying to uh, go through his studies at school. It left a very strong impression on him, not only his his resolve to continue his studies, but also his religious beliefs, or, or from then on, his lack of religious belief. Yeah, while, while at university, Lenin became involved in politics, attended a socialist rally, so he was, which is illegal to do. He was expelled from the university. He was singled out because of his association with his brother. All he did is he went home and read more political material. Lenin read all of Sasha's Marxist and socialist books, most of which were actually banned under Russian law. Lenin was particularly influenced by Nikolai Chernyshevsky's book, What Is To Be Done, which is actually about a revolutionary and contains ideas of collectivism. Lenin would eventually hang Chernyshevsky's portrait in his office in the Kremlin. Lenin came to believe in state ownership of property and the means of production. He wanted to create an absolute classless society. There would be no state and no religion. The peasants would govern themselves. The underlying principle of this is that he wanted to abolish profit. Marx described profit as exploiting the working class by paying them less than the value of the product that they created. And if you'd like to know more about communist policies, you can visit the Australian Labor Party website, labor.gov.au. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't send me any letters. <laughs> Lennon then finished his studies at another university. He became a lawyer and he lost 13 of the 14 cases. What if Lennon had been a more successful lawyer? Would the Russian Revolution have taken place? Around this time in 1891, there was a massive famine in Russia in which 400,000 people starved to death. Throughout the famine, there were relief efforts set up by wealthy middle-class liberals, including uh, his own family took part in these relief efforts. Famous authors like Leo Tolstoy and Anton Chekhov also took part, but Lenin did not. He thought the misery was a good thing because he believed the suffering would create the conditions for a revolution. So Lenin becomes a revolutionary. He determined to create the socialist revolution. He wrote for underground magazines and during his lifetime he would write 10 million published words. He lectured working class people because he realized that he didn't actually know anything about the working class. He didn't know any working class people. He wanted to get out and, and speak with them so he could understand them better. And during this time he realized that the peasants and the working class had no interest in the revolution that he was promising. Part of that was a realization that while previously the Marxists had hoped that the peasants would rise up, firstly, the peasants didn't have the means to do so, but they certainly didn't have the means to work together. So Lenin's group and the other radical groups at the time, and there were several, realised that they would have to run the revolution for the, for the peasants rather than expect the peasants to be able to rise up on their own. Yes, exactly. And, and a lot of the peasants were illiterate, so they couldn't read Marx, particularly when a lot of the books, a lot of the socialist books were banned. Uh, a peasant revolution would have been quite unlikely. Lenin decides that he has to bring about the revolution so that the middle class academic intellectuals should bring about the revolution for the sake of the working class 
and for the sake of the peasantry. This belief is partly practical because there's no chance that the peasants and the working class have the means or the desire to bring about this revolution. But it also grew from his ego because he felt that only he had the intelligence to create this perfect society. And you imagine the arrogance necessary to form that belief. You're able to come up with this perfect system that's going to eliminate all suffering, all inequality, all hardship. It's like the ultimate intellectual challenge. This idea also came from his obsessive personality. He was compulsively anal. Every morning he would dust his desk and dust his bookshelf. And he would sharpen and arrange his pencils in the same way every morning. One time on a public train, he took all the toilet paper and began rationing it to all the travelers so that everyone would get an equal amount. This is the last man you want running a government. In 1994, Lenin meets Nadia Krupskoya at a Marxist underground discussion group. Nadia was a true believer in the cause. At these Marxist discussion groups, Lenin impressed. This is because he was a diabolical debater. While the middle class 19th century intellectuals that he met with were always disagreeing politely and calmly, Lenin was absolutely ruthless in his arguments. He would attack the man and not the ball. He would attack his opponent directly and personally. And he would use this aggressive, obscene and violent language. And this would actually actually end up being emulated by Marxists inside and outside of Russia. And this manner of debating is still used by the far left Marxists even today. And it's to a degree bled out into mainstream politics. So we can blame Lenin for the state of our current political discourse. Lenin was exiled to Siberia in 1897 for attempting to start a Marxist underground newspaper. He was sent to Shushinskoya, known as the Italy of Siberia because it was the mildest of all the exiled destinations. While he was in Siberia, he proposed to Nadia by writing a letter in invisible ink. Lenin loved all the cloak and dagger underground spy tactics. Nadia agreed to the marriage and they were married in Shushinskoya. The wedding was performed by an Orthodox priest who originally refused to marry them because they didn't have any rings, but another political exile was a former jeweler and fashioned two rings out of coins. Nadia was actually exiled to Siberia for her crimes and there's some talk that she actually was exiled and caught on purpose so that she could be with Lenin. Lenin finished his term, moved out of Shushinskaya so he could continue his work, so he left his wife in Siberia to start the revolution. Lenin began writing under many names, partly for his own safety, but partly also to make the movement seem bigger than it was if many different names attached to his articles. We haven't spoken about Hitler yet, but when he first started the Nazi party, every member had a membership number and the memberships started at 500. So the first member of the Nazi party was number 501. Lenin then moved out of Russia and traveled around Europe. He went to England, France, Germany, and Switzerland. It was in Germany that he set up his underground newspaper, Isgra. This newspaper was printed in Germany and sent to Russia. But he spent most of his time in Switzerland. And it was in 1905 that the Tsar realized he was so unpopular and he had to make a change. So he creates the Duma, which is a council with no real legal authority. He's still an absolute monarch. He has total control, but he has this advisory council. But despite all the opposition to the Tsar, Lenin's revolution was going nowhere. Life underground was exciting and far more meaningful than being just a middle-class professional. Lenin meets his mistress, Inessa Armand, in 1908. He gives up his mistress, but they become an on-and-off-again couple. Lenin would give up many different things over the course of his life that he felt would get in the way of the revolution. He gave up his mistress. He gave up chess, which he loved and was very good at. He gave up ice skating, and he even gave up Beethoven. He felt that Beethoven was so beautiful, it would prevent him 
from being able to commit the violence necessary to bring about the revolution. He was a very committed revolutionary, but at this time, this revolution was not going anywhere. This all changed. At the outbreak of war in 1914, war is a great time for a revolution. And this is made worse by the fact that the government in Russia was absolutely useless. They couldn't equip their men properly. You actually had two men per one gun. So what would happen is one Russian soldier would have a gun, a second would follow him, and when the first soldier was shot, the second soldier would pick up his gun and continue the fight. So by February 1917, when I say February, this is actually March, but by the Russian calendar, it's February. So by February slash March 1917, the people have had enough. There's massive widespread protests. And so the Tsar actually abdicates. He asks his brother to become Tsar. His brother refuses. So the Tsar gives power to the Duma to set up a provisional government. And this provisional government was to decide how... Russia would look without a monarchy. This all happens while Lenin's in Switzerland and he completely misses the boat. So Lenin just realizes he has to get to Russia. So the Germans who are still at war with the Russians because the provisional government of Russia does not take Russia out of the war. So the Germans come up with a plan. So the Germans and Lenin come to an agreement. The Germans organize a train to take Lenin to Russia so that he can create instability, take control of the government and take Russia out of the war. So Lenin, his wife, his mistress and other revolutionaries get on this train headed for Russia. The carriage doors are locked so that they cannot spread their Marxist propaganda to Germans while on the train. Lenin arrives in Russia and he takes control of the Bolshevik movement, which is one of the many socialist groups in Russia. But the Bolsheviks did not have widespread popular appeal and he was worried that he would die young as his father did. So he was very keen to get started right away. So he threatened, blackmailed and bullied the Bolsheviks until they agreed to stage a coup against the Russian provisional government. It was very disorganized and it was an open secret that the coup was going to take place. It was actually even printed in one of the newspapers in Russia. So in October, Russian calendar, November, our calendar, the coup begins. Lenin sneaks into the center of Petrograd and Trotsky tells him that the revolution has started and the very atheist Lenin performs the sign of the cross. The coup was very easy and very successful because the public didn't really care. The provisional government inspired no loyalty or no fear. It was just a loose collection of political parties with no history or plan. What is often forgotten due to the success of the Soviet propaganda that came afterwards is that the revolution was not a real revolution. It was not millions of people in the streets. Two million people lived in Petrograd at the time. Only 10,000 took part in the Bolshevik coup in October. So most people didn't even realize a revolution was taking place. Life went on as normal. In the Petrograd cinema, a movie was being shown. We even know what movie was playing. It was the death of Ivan the Terrible, which I just think is fantastic. How good is that? So as the, as the movie played, the Bolsheviks took control. The Bolsheviks' revolution succeeded. They seized the railways, the post office, and other government administration buildings. They took over the fortress that overlooked the Winter Palace, which was where the provisional government had set up and Kerensky the provisional government president attempted to convince the army to stop the Bolsheviks taking over there was absolute debacle there were 30 cars out the front of the palace none of them would start he tried to order a taxi but couldn't find one he ended up borrowing a car of an American diplomat but it was all too late the Bolsheviks seized 
the Winter Palace and arrested the provisional government. The other socialist groups who did not take part in the coup, they walked out in disgust. This was a massive mistake because that gave all power to Lenin because there was no one left within the socialist movement to oppose him. An excellent quote from Lenin really sums up the significance of this very unlikely event. Lenin says, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks when decades happen. Soviet films and other propaganda would depict the October coup as this glorious revolution and uprising of the working class with millions of people taking part. But that was not the case. It was a planned, organized operation by, by a small number of Bolsheviks. In fact, in the propaganda films that were made, there were more extras hired for the film than actually took part in the revolution. As Lenin said, a lie told often enough becomes the truth. Len Lenin wasn't the last to say that. One of the reasons why the general populace felt no loyalty towards the provisional government is because they, during the the year of 1917, they'd neither managed to turn the course of the war nor managed to end the war. So the war was still going on throughout this entire time. And as you said, the Germans, in fact, conspired to bring Lenin back to back to Russia so that he could make things even less stable for Russia than, than it already was after the abdication. So Trotsky agrees to make Lenin leader. Trotsky says it's because he's a Jew and a Jew could never be the leader of Russia. Little did they know that Lenin was also part Jewish. But the real reason was that Trotsky knew what Lenin was like. He knew what his personality was. He knew how controlling Lenin could be. So he didn't want to be in charge with Lenin underneath him telling him what to do. It was going to be easier on Trotsky if Lenin was in control. Lenin's three promises to the public are peace, bread, and land. So Lenin signs a peace with Germany, taking them out of World War I. So Germany's very happy about this, and the, pub and the Russian people are very happy about this too. However, a civil war within Russia immediately breaks out between communists and the white Russians. And the white Russians are just any Russians who are not red, aka any Russian who is not communist. With the civil war, the Red Terror also begins. The Red Terror is the government terrorism against its own people to cement their power. And the secret police, the Cheka, is created to carry this out. It's based on the Tsarist Okhrana, which persecuted Lenin. And it's the forerunner to the KGB, which we all know and love. So the secret police, the Cheka, is created to eliminate the bourgeoisie, the rich people. There's a Ukrainian Cheka member who really sums up the aims of the Cheka. I'll read you his quotes. Very good. All right, listen to this. We are not fighting against single individuals. We are exterminating the bourgeoisie as a class. Do not look in the file of incriminating evidence to see whether or not the accused rose up against the Soviets. Ask him to which class he belongs. What background does he have? What's his education? What's his profession? These are the questions that will determine the fate of the accused. That's a great quote. It shows the development of the idea of collective guilt and that a person is guilty because of his class. It's similar to what we discussed last week with Mussolini and fascism, where a person is guilty by their nationality or by their race. The eradication of the idea of a individual to be replaced by your group identity, that is the key similarity between fascism and communism. Winston Churchill would later write about the 
similarities between fascism and communism. He described fascism and communism as the North Pole and the South Pole. He said that while they're at opposite ends of the earth, if you woke up in one or the other, you wouldn't really know which one you were in because they're actually so similar despite being at other ends of the political spectrum. They're actually in practice very much the same. So during the Red Terror, hundreds of thousands die in these purges. The Cheka actually has quotas to hit for the number of people they have to kill. And they often just kill people randomly because they have to hit this target. And I know it's important to reach your KPIs, but that's just ridiculous. A state newspaper is created called the Pravda, which encourages peasants to kill the rich. So Lenin was once in favor of terrorism against the government. Now the government he led was a terrorist organization. We have this letter he wrote to a Ukrainian official. In this area of Ukraine, they were having some problems with the Kulaks, who are rich peasants. The idea of the Kulak would stretch and change over time. At first, it used to mean a useless person who was just an owner and did not contribute anything at all used to exploit the workers and the peasants. But that gradually changed and eventually it would just mean anybody who was more successful than you and even say a mildly successful peasant could be called a kulak and be subjected to death. And so in this order to this Ukrainian official, Lenin writes, hang in full view, no fewer than a hundred kulaks. Publish their names and seize all grain from them. P.S. Use your toughest people for this. This situation with the peasants and the kulaks adds to the famine that's already going on because they kill all the productive farmers. Because they're seizing all the food from the farmers, it takes away all incentive to grow food. And it reminds me of the old Soviet joke, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. This famine killed 5 million people inside Russia. It was so bad that seeds would be eaten instead of planted because people were so hungry and they would eventually be selling human corpses on the side of the road as food. And throughout this time, the Red Terror continues. It's been reported that it was a routine practice for the Cheka to take a man hostage and arrest him and wait for his wife to come to pay for his life with her body. And it's just incredible how, as we've noticed with Ivan the Terrible, how quickly the psychopathic and sadistic become the henchmen for these dictators. The worst people in the world come to the fore. And in fact, a lot of Lenin's colleagues in the party were worried of the Cheka almost becoming bigger than the state itself to the extent where they were not only used as secret police or as instruments of terror, but um, also to set up the gulags, the concentration camps. So the, the Cheka's influence became much bigger than people in the party had uh, had it ever expected it to be. Yes, and the Marxist idea of, of a stateless world without a government and the peasants would just govern themselves, that really faded away. Lenin believed it didn't go far enough. We have this quote from him at this time where he says, our regime is mild. It's more like milk pudding than iron. In 1918, there's an assassination attempt against Lenin. He was shot twice in the neck and this really affects his health. And then in 1919, Lenin invades Poland. He wants to create a communist revolution throughout all of Europe. They call Poland the red bridge that's going to take communism from Russia into Germany and the rest of Europe. Because Lenin believed in his Marxist idea that men are more loyal to their class than to their country. So he believed that the Russian army would be welcomed by the Poles. But that turned out to be completely wrong and the Poles fought very well and defeated the Red Army. Lenin's mistress Anessa Armand then dies in 1920 and this actually worsens Lenin's health. 
he has a stroke in 1922 and then he has another one six months later that leaves him partly paralyzed in his arm and in his leg the infamous joseph stalin would visit lenin at his rehab facility and lenin liked stalin for his ruthlessness and lenin at this time was really scared that he would have another stroke that would leave him unable to speak and that would make his life not worth living so he asked stalin to give him a cyanide pill that he could take in that event Stalin, being Stalin, refuses and reports this conversation to the Kremlin. Stalin very cleverly worked to keep Lenin isolated from the party so that he could control the communication between Lenin and the party. And he even had nurses and secretaries spying on Lenin so that he knew what he was up to. And he eventually found out that Lenin was writing a document that would suggest that Stalin should be kicked out of the party and lose his position as general secretary. So Lenin had secret police monitoring everything that he did and he'd become a victim of the of the apparatus that he built. A stroke did eventually leave him unable to talk and he then died soon after that stroke. He died on the 21st of January 1924. Lenin was revered after his death the villagers carried his coffin to the train station where it was taken back to the city. Stalin took advantage of the fact that Trotsky was sick when Lenin died. Stalin organized a funeral and positioned himself as the successor to Lenin. And he sidelined Trotsky as much as he could. And Stalin Stalin comes up with this idea to have Lenin's body preserved forever so that people can always view Lenin's body. And they build this mausoleum to house Lenin's remains. And you can still go and see Lenin's body undecayed and Lenin's wife even says I would have preferred he be buried with his mistress following Lenin's death factionalism develops throughout the party with um, Stalin against Trotsky and Stalin ends up winning that battle and Trotsky ends up being exiled and eventually killed in 1940 in Mexico with an ice pick You have to assume that being killed with an ice pick is a message that you were killed by someone in Russia. Because what purpose could you have for an ice pick in Mexico? The legacy of Lenin is a complicated one in that for a long time he was revered inside Russia and inside communist Marxist circles around the world. Part of that is because a lot of the worst things that Lenin did were actually only found out after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so after Lenin's death, this religious idea developed that Lenin is always with us and Lenin is watching over us. And it's this weird morphing of the Christian idea of the the omnipresence of God, but it becomes the omnipresence of Lenin forever looking over us. And so inside and outside Russia, the idea of Lenin as this golden revolutionary persisted. But now we have the records that show him to be the monster that he really was. I think looking at Lenin, he was fiercely loyal to his family and the the execution of his brother was something that he always remembered in his portrayal of what what Russia had come to be under the Tsar. And, and Lenin believed that because of his love of Marxism and Marx's writings, Lenin believed that uh, he was indeed destined to, to bring about the revolution which would stop this this hereditary ruling class from having control over people's lives. As you say, part of the irony of that is that then once the Bolsheviks took over power, then orchestrated the machinery of state through the the, the Cheka and the military to, 
to have a similar level of control over the population. He he believed that because of his his background in law, his background in in journalism, his his having travelled throughout Europe, uh, that he was well placed to help bring about the revolution on behalf of the peasants. Uh, but then he ended up being um, required to be as strong, as ruthless as his as his predecessors, and as turned out, that set the model for his successors as well. Yes, as, as Batman teaches us, the hero either dies or lives long enough to see himself become the villain. And uh, <laughs> certainly, certainly became a villain. And so how do we compare these two dictators, these two Russians, the first Tsar against the man who would end the rule of the Tsars. In terms of their significance, both had a huge impact on history. Lenin creates a communist revolution in Russia, which would allow, inspire, and fund revolutions in China and Vietnam, other parts of Southeast Asia, Cuba, Central America, South America. And and various parts of Eastern Europe as well. I think it comes down to how did they perceive themselves? Ivan certainly saw himself as destined to rule. I think in the early days of the planning for the revolution, Lenin didn't see himself as destined to rule. Then he realised what methods he'd need to employ in order to keep keep the party in power. First, to end the war. Secondly, to be able to prosecute the civil war and then to start implementing the, the reforms in governance that needed to happen. I don't think Lenin set out to be a dictator as such. I think he was a revolutionary who became became a dictator. Part of that was because of the, the state of Russia before the war, let alone upon the signing of the treaty in early 1918. And also just through the practicalities of trying to enforce the policies he supported, it's very hard to confiscate grain from peasants without the use of force. Yes, yeah, especially as you say when there's not much incentive to grow it or if you do grow it there's actually quite a lot of incentive to hide it rather than be uh, risk it being taken taken by the state and the a lot of the peasants especially those in the far flung parts of Russia wouldn't have seen much material difference between a Tsarist Russia and a Bolshevik Russia. It was still someone in power ruling supposedly for their benefit and the benefit of the other the other noble classes um, the peasants certainly took a long time to understand the significance of the bolshevik revolution uh, but even in tsarist times there was still a secret police there was still there was still repression there were still pogroms and so for the the average peasant in russia they probably didn't see a great deal of difference from the tsarist revolution until to the bolshevik revolution other than the fact that bolsheviks had ended the war and had a checker which was a lot more determined to reinforce its position in power and in terms of deciding who will be eliminated from our competition and who will uh, proceed to the next round, we've got a bit of a rubric and they cover two items. One is who is the most significant of the two and the other being, being who is the most stereotypically dictatorial. In hundreds of years' time, will we still be talking about them? I think these days we remember Ivan the Terrible because of his nickname. I don't think we remember Ivan now as much as we will remember Lenin in 200, 400 years' time. I Uh, agree with that, but with the caveat, I think that Lenin will remember not so much for his dictatorship, but for 
the revolution and for him being a revolutionary. Lenin will be more remembered, but I think Ivan the Terrible might be better remembered as a dictator than Lenin. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And it comes back to the fact that Lenin didn't set out to be a dictator. He set out to facilitate a revolution. And and you write about, the, for instance, the, the determination that Trotsky made about the best way to bring stability to the, the post-revolutionary administration. And he would have wanted to be seen as in that role because he was asked to take it on rather than having strived for it. In terms of who's, who's the more archetypal dictator, that comes down to length of time in power. I, Ivan was was crowned in 1547 and he was Tsar until 1584. So that was plenty of time for him to implement both his domestic and his foreign policies. Whereas I, I don't think we saw Lenin in power long enough to be able to describe him as an archetypal dictator, whereas Ivan certainly had plenty of time to be that. If we're looking at who was the most significant national leader, then it's Lenin. It must be Lenin, because... In terms of the legacy, I guess part of the irony in all of that is that after the Bolshevik Revolution, the USSR didn't see out the 20th century. But then, a 100 years after the Bolshevik Revolution, there are still a lot of similarities in Moscow today in how Russia itself is governed. That even ties back to Ivan the Terrible. Ivan becomes the prototype for the czars and then lenin once he takes over to keep the country together follows that example that Mm. persists throughout the entire history of the soviet union and and one day scott we're going to have to answer the question i hope that day is not today but one day we're going to have to answer the question that was stalin and putin are they just czars by another name but i think in terms of who's the more significant out of ivan and lenin I think it's Lenin. And I think we have our answer in terms of significance, in terms of their impact, not just in Russia, but outside of Russia. Lenin has defeated Ivan the Terrible to be declared this week's greater dictator and will remain in the competition. Ivan the Terrible is eliminated. Sorry, Ivan. And I think you've I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Scott, when you talk about influence outside Russia. The Soviet Union was sponsoring communist movements in other countries. There's lots of examples of the Soviets operating on a global scale as part of the, the worldwide revolution. So next week, we'll be leaving Europe and looking at two dictators from Asia. We've got Kankas Khan up against mystery opponent. That ends today's episode of Liberty Guard. Thank you, Scott.